fair play to you. You're brilliant, even if I say so and I'm your mother. Michael Whelan likes everyone's story. Everybody has a story. Everyone's personal history. People in the 20th century in Ireland have lived through very unique times. He gathers histories and writes about them, especially military stories. They would come up with phrases like, you know, our job is to make you officers and gentlemen. Uh, we'll guarantee that you'll be officers, but whether you're gentlemen or not is another business, you know. Michael Whelan likes to talk about everyone's past but his own. You said in your speech that writing this book was therapy for you and there was a lot of anger in it. I don't really want to get into it because <clears throat> I'm talking about it. Take a deep breath when you come in here now because we can smell the history, okay? okay. <laughs> it's just dirt now, but it's history. <laughs> okay, so this dates from the 40s. Number one hangar in the Air Corps Aerodrome in Baldonnell, County Dublin, is Michael's hangar, so the joke goes. Well, this is a feat in itself, you know. In a military environment, resources are tight at the best time in any army. And to get a hangar, like, there's not many airmen in the, in the Air Corps have their own hangar, you know what I mean? <laughs> The GOC has five or six of them, we're even there when I have one, you know. <laughs> the GOC is short for General Officer Commanding, head of the Irish Army Air Corps. Before we look at the floor of the hangar, Michael tells me to look up at the building itself. There's four hangars here which date from the 1917 period, just after the 1916 rebellion. The British, to reinforce that situation, you know, they, put the, they, they built airfields and military posts all around the country. And what you're looking at is 1917 architecture. See the arches there and the windows? All right, yeah. So this is listed by the Heritage Council of Ireland. On the floor of the huge hangar are memorabilia telling the story of the military and aviation in Ireland. The Avril 19, which is a Second World War period uh, aircraft. Helicopters. This one actually crashed a few years ago. There's nobody killed, but the Air Corps rebuilt it for the museum here, you know, and the kids love the plane. You have a vampire which dates from 1956. Jets and propeller-driven planes. Two chipmunk trainers. Guns. These are anti-aircraft guns. So it's just to remind the pilots. <laughs> Radar. We call this Dr. Who's uh, tumble dryer. Dr. Who's tumble dryer. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a tumble dryer, but it's, it's a radar. Simulators. If he had an angle of attack, say he was taking off or turning left, this whole machine would turn left or right. It would pretty be. sophisticated for the 1920s. Well, you see, war has a tendency to help development in anything, whether it's medicine, weaponry, machinery. Some of the material is from abroad from World War II America. You've also got four B-17 engines which have recovered from the Sligo Leitrim border area. Or from World War II Germany. This is a Baldonnel and Talla German Luftwaffe reconnaissance photographs. But you have all the hangars, all the buildings listed on what they are. And then this is Talla, uh, just down by Jacobs there. And you know where Jacobs is? Yeah, and Belgrade. it's all in Germany. That, yeah. that was an airfield there. So I've taken within a couple of minutes of each other. And where, where you would have landed here? You would have security airfields to get more troops in. And it's close to the city to take the city, you know, take the post office, uh, telephone exchange, seat of power. 
you know, so and it's it says knock Dublin, yeah. middle, knock the Etva 10 kilometres, which probably means approximately 10 kilometres. Yeah. It's all neat and clearly laid out, yet even though the hangar's enormous, there's still a lot of history pushed in together. One display, for example, has the picture of a plane bought by the Provisional Government of the Republic during the treaty negotiations. Yeah, that's the big fella, it's a Mercedes Toy Bay Mark II, and this is the aircraft purchased to bring Michael Collins and the signatories of the treaty back to Ireland in case the treaty talks went sour and cast it out in a hurry, you know. Turn around from that photo and you're looking at an old Air Corps Fuga jet fighter, the same kind used by Belgian mercenaries to strafe Irish troops in the Congo. Maybe even the same plane. We have guys come back who served in the Congo and some of them come in and they'd be looking along the fuselage for bullet holes and I'm saying, why are you looking for bullet holes? Because I shot that aircraft. At one end of the hangar are display cases full of hundreds of aeroplane models. The majority came from Ian Haddow's emergent Navy captain during the emergency. It's British Navy you now. And other Air Corps paraphernalia. He had his housewife, the brush there for shaving, you know. What's a housewife? It's a thing that you're issued with. It's got needles and thread and buttons. and to repair a uniform or your kit, oh, you know. Right, so they call right. it the housewife. Then around the walls of the hangar are the blue doors. So it's like a lot of if they're interested in history. <laughs> To some people, these are junk rooms. To Michael Whelan, they're storerooms. This is the box for the Fuga aircraft, the vampire aircraft, Shipmunk. So when it comes well, what's in, in those boxes? What kind of materials is uh, in What we have in there is logbooks, maintenance manuals, anything. If I get a photograph on a vampire, I stick it in there. What's your job in the aircraft? I'm an aircraft repair technician. At the moment, uh, I look after the museum. I put the museum together with the help of a few friends and the permission of the staff of the aircraft. I'm just finishing the master's degree in history. I love history and I want to try and preserve as much history as I can. And I'm in the air car and it's a good opportunity to try and save as much of the air car heritage. Buildings and aircraft and stories. And the GOC of the air car, General Ralph James, seems to be interested in preserving the heritage. So as long as he's interested, I'll do the job. At the moment, I'm helping out with the teaching history to the career courses in the Defence Force. You know, so. Why is it important to teach history to new people coming in? It gives you a sense of tradition and a, and a sense of identity, basically. And I think that's what's important, to bring people together, you know. Anybody in Ireland has a sense of the history of Ireland, OK? But if you're in, if you're in a place like, this, like a defence force, a military environment, I think it's important to have a sense of tradition that goes beyond that, you know, brings you together. Where did you get your interest in history from? I don't know, because uh, when I was in school, I couldn't seem to be uh, able for it, you know. The way they taught you in the 70s, I suppose didn't get the answer right, you got a belt or something, you know, so uh, that didn't work. Just hearing about my father and my grandparents, and I seem to understand history more than I do the present, you know, basically. Do you? Yeah. How I can you imagine it me? better. I can imagine it. Like, I love the detective work in it. I was doing some research there recently on my, on my grandmother's family, and I went and found where she was born, and I found a family in Mitchellstown in Cork, you know, and they were living as tenants under the landlord, you know, and like that's her parents, like, she was a child then, and you think about it, it's what, three, four generations and we've come to this period. And I don't think people realise what it took to get to this stage, you know. My great-great-grandfather was his whole father. They were British soldiers, you know what I mean? And there's been tradition of military in my family up until now, like, you know. My grandfather's my father, my brother, and now my younger brother's in there. You know, my, my grandfather, he's dead now, God bless him, but he was born in January 1916. So he was living in the inner city... As a child, his mother tried to protect him, just as Stephen's Green Day, where the heavy, some of the heavy fighting was going on during 1960, you know. So things like that, hearing things like that as I was growing up, 
maybe my life was very boring, you know, and I lived in the past, but basically that's how it happened. And I like, just like to hear people's stories, you know. I enjoy the past more than the present. You're listening to Flux with Ronan Kelly. In this programme, Michael Whelan, Air Corps historian. As important as the physical displays are, for Michael, they're matched by the glass cases of the mind. Hello, Ed. How are you? Here's a good night for Michael. A reunion of retired Air Corps pilots right here in the hangar. Hi, Niall. Hi, The retirees are in their late 60s, early 70s. Grey hair, some longish, one or two crew cut, the rest in between. Many are ruddy-faced. All shapes and heights. By contrast, the young pilots of today are there too. Tight haircuts, gelled dark blue uniforms, cut to show off their broad shoulders and narrow waists. The men, I see no women, have uniform shapes and heights too, it seems. It looks like a cruel contrast, the young with the old, but it doesn't sound like it. He came back with half a three on my aeroplane. The older guys are easier, more expansive. Louder. Try again. <laughs> Over my shoulder. The older guys occupy the hangar. They mingle. Today's guys are bunched at one end. The older guys chat and laugh. There was a bit of an IRA scare. I remember the commanding officer calling us in and saying, if there, there was an attack on the airfield, anybody who cars would drive them out on the road and try and block the attack. All right. And I thank God I didn't have a car to sacrifice it. <laughs> <laughs> Dying for Ireland would be one thing, but if I had a car to sacrifice for Ireland, it would be quite something else. The older guys' stories are all about breaking the rules. High spirits, they call it. We were, we were young fellas and uh, we were into every sort of bit of devilment. One form of high spirits was beating up. This is a term they used for flying low over somewhere, below the permitted height. You'd often do it over your own home place to startle your family and neighbours. The lower, the louder, the better. You'd often do it where you could get away with it. Oldcastle County Mead became popular for a while. I was very friendly with the local sergeant who was a very noted Kerry footballer in his day. Garda Sergeant. Garda Sergeant. And any, any complaints that ever come in, they never went any further. It got to be such that a lot of people knew this and they went down and, and they, they beat up Old Castle. <laughs> I was doing a bit of low flying in, in, in the Spitfire out over um, North County Dublin and uh, the Mead area. And I came back and, and I landed here. And uh, it was a Wednesday because we had recreational half day. We went playing football. So the following day, uh, my boss called me in. He was um, General Brigadier General o- O'Connor, and he said, "Were, were you low flying?" And uh, I realised that he knew. And I said, "Yes." Well, he said, "You're in right stiff altogether because there's a a British major has a stud farm over there and." Uh, one of his mares is in foal to a very expensive sire and it threw the head in the stable and he said 
the, it's due to drop the, the foal in, in about um, three, four weeks' time. And he said, uh, if the foal is okay, you're okay. If the foal isn't okay, they'll be coming after you. So he said, in the meantime, you're grounded, you know. <laughs> so and was the they, foal okay? They, uh, the foal was okay. And about three weeks later, I think they sent me on an audit down to the officer's mess. And, and uh, eventually he called me and he said, you're off the hook, you know. The Spitfire was good for beating up. There was supposed to be one here tonight, one of the ones those pilots trained in in the 1950s has been restored and is in England. It couldn't travel from London today because of low cloud, or, as was announced by Jeff O'Byrne in that glorious jargon, a low 946 over the Irish Sea. It's great to see everybody here. It's great to see such a turnout uh, of, of people. Uh, O'Byrne is the head of CityJet, who are sponsoring the evening. Uh, somebody asked me yesterday, uh, why did you bring the Spitfire, or where did you go about set about bringing the Spitfire back to At first, it seems a bit unseemly that a commercial organisation is getting involved with the Defence Forces. Then you're told that when these pilots joined the Air Corps in the 1950s, there was an Aer Lingus representative on the interview board. This was because once they were trained, they were available to be recruited directly into Aer Lingus. The head of CityJet, Jeff O'Byrne, is ex-Air Corps. The aviation business has always done well out of the Air Corps, he says. And that it is really the wellspring of so much uh, talent that has gone into the aviation industry here in Ireland. Our flight operations manager is ex-Air Corps, our head of training is ex-Air Corps, and many of our engineers are ex-Air Corps. A similar picture emerges in Ryanair, and of course for years uh, the Air Corps provided a tremendous nursery for uh, Aer Lingus. So, Historian Michael Whelan is going around meeting the retired pilots. Will you be able to write that by the time I get you? Will you be able to write in it by the time I get you? Do that, right, OK. bring it down to you. And gathering names for his visitor's book and stories for his memory. I would yeah, I'm bringing it down to the mess. All right, that's I'm going to bring it past down around the mess. You don't want At low tide, the beach to the east of Gormanton is exposed. No long stretch all along there. And when firing practice was called, when the tide went out, people went out and they drew little circles on the, on the exposed sand in whitewash. They came overhead, smeared bell down, and dived down and fired at the targets. Now, I managed, I managed a couple of times I hit, actually hit the beach, yes, I guilty my lord, guilty as charged, but on this particular occasion, uh, I was diving in and I pulled back a little bit too soon and I had my finger on the frying button a little too long and my bus, instead of going to the beach, went out to sea and there was a trawler coming back to Skerries which had ignored the government health war <laughs> of going through the exclusion zone and the bus straddled him. Or sort of thing, but the skipper wasn't hit and the trawler wasn't hit. Legend has that he returned, he got to Scurries at full throttle, went into Joe Mays and wasn't seen for three days. <laughs> it's a corkman saved by a Kerryman, isn't that right? Yes. He remembers nothing because he crashed his plane. Pat O'Callaghan is here with a bag of gifts for Michael. A bit of photographs. Logbooks and the model of a propeller from a Spitfire that Pat was flying when it flipped over and crashed into the ground. It was a timber propeller and some of the guys in the carpenter shop here, workshop, made a replica scale model of the propeller out of the crash. I was a training flight coming into land, went to overshoot I think, touched the wing, this is only surmise, touched the wing, wing came off, tail came off, engine came off, airplane upside down, pilot underneath and that was it, yeah. 
woke up in hospital. Also in the bag, Pat has a curious metal bar with a point at one end. In the canopy of the Spitfire, it was a, a sliding Perspex canopy, and in the event of, say, a forced landing or in service and you crash in the aircraft, was a little twisted and you couldn't slide back. You had this inside and you could, on a little clip, and you could take it out and jemmy your way out of the cockpit. I didn't need it in my case. I had another way of getting out. <laughs> Turn it upside down. <laughs> you use County Dublin to take, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. To take Mother, the canopy. Mother Earth. <laughs> the main source of the fire were probably gone because the, the battery was in the tail of the aircraft and the engine was gone. So Later in the officer's mess, Pat has asked to tell the story again. A certain individual, Kerry Mann, who I believe is not here tonight, no, unfortunately, he jumped on the jeep coming across the ramp. He arrived down and he told the fire crew, stand back, stand back. And he put his back under the wing, put in his hand and got a hold of this individual inside and uh, pulled him out. I had no idea what happened. I was fairly badly shook. I wasn't always like this, you know. I was, <laughs> I was torn across here. Nose was torn up, the thing that... Other speeches are from Colin Moriarty, another retired pilot, and Kevin Myers from the Irish Times. A couple of guys were having just a few dry sherries, you know, in the mess, as one would, wouldn't one. Colin Moriarty intersperses slide photos of the old Spitfires with anecdotes about those who flew them. Can hens fly? So they said they'd prove it. So the hen was smuggled out of the aircraft and at 11 o'clock flew over Aldon and um, hen was... Uh, the guy who was judging whether the hen could fly or not was the aeronautical officer. He was in the, in the tower with the glasses. And his report left a lot to be desired. He said, the hen came out first of all, and instead of doing some straight to level, as, well as, he, as he was briefed to do, straight up into sole turn, down, roll off top, down again, four or five spin turns. Then he realizes he's getting close to the ground and tries to pull up. And then he said, he tried to auto-rotate. Oh, I don't think auto rotation in those days was unheard of. So I thought it was a bit of a gross exaggeration. Hen didn't live anyway. So at a, a sort of a court Kevin party, Myers sets out to prove that Yeats's poem, Elegy on the Death of an Irish Airman, was a misrepresentation. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. Myers said Yeats took the story of the life of the World War airman Robert Gregory and misused it for his own ends. Of the reality of the life and deeds of the great Irish fighter ace, acting major, temporary captain, First Lieutenant Robert Gregory MC, French Legion d'honneur and commander of the Russian Order of St. Michael Whelan understands this. Fair play to you. You're brilliant. Even if I say so when I'm your mother. He's at a function in the library in Tallaght, County Dublin. The occasion is the launch of a book, his book, about a group of Irish people misused by history. People are queuing up for him to sign copies. That's for Miss Kelly, you OK? Yeah. So who's this one for, Miss Book? Michael's book is a retelling of the story of the Battle of Jadoville in the Congo in 1961. Because he was in the Congo, so he will like the... Yeah. Although, according to Michael, the Congo mission and the sacrifices made by those who died there was an important part of our national development, he says Jadoville revealed flaws in United Nations interventions. Until recently, Michael says, the disastrous Jadoville operation was written out of the history of the Irish in the Congo. Well, when you hear me, you understand why I'm not a councillor. <laughs>
But firstly, I'd like to thank the Mayor of South County Dublin. One of those who fought there, John Gorman, made a short and emotional speech. And Michael for writing the book. I would also like to thank my wife, Joan, and family for the last four years doing the work I've done. And my good friend here, Councillor Astonbury. Thank you very much. Michael spoke too, of course. I'd like to say thanks to John Graham for letting me do the, the story and I'd like to welcome you. He explained that the way history treated the Irish in Jadaville angered him so much that he wanted to publish the book. But his anger wasn't just on behalf of the soldiers or against the historians. In his speech, he revealed more personal reasons too. Coming home from Kosovo five years ago, what I'm going to say there is me studying for the thesis and getting into that was kind of a therapy for me because I was very angry at things and that kind of took a lot of the, well, I can't be real, but a lot of the angst out of that, okay? <laughs> so if you're reading the thesis, the book there, you'll probably feel a bit of that coming through. <laughs> I apologise and I don't apologise for that. Chadabu <laughs> uh, uh, was a form of therapy, as I said, because the story is so... Can you explain to me what you meant by therapy when you made your speech, that this was therapy for you? You said in your speech that writing this book was therapy for you and there was a lot of anger in it. Going overseas takes, does something to you, you know, basically, and uh, I don't really want to get into it because <clears throat> I'm talking about it, but I just said it. As I was writing the story and researching it, it was good to get stuff out of me, like, okay. kind of stuff. So that was a therapy because I was getting it out of my system okay. through that, basically. So you were in Kosovo? I was. Now, I don't want to ask you about you in Kosovo and what individually happened to you, because obviously you had difficult things. But was it, a, was it something just to do with you, or was it, just to, was it to do with overseas service? Is it something about the structure of overseas service, or is it something about the fact that we go and do it and maybe we're not prepared for it as a country? There's an element of all of that in it. So it's a, bit, it's a bit about you and it's a bit about the army. And, uh, and yeah, the, and a bit about the country. And in 1961, they went into something that they weren't prepared for. Right. Now there's more preparation. But overseas trips still affect people. No matter how well prepared or how little prepared you're going out, it still affects you, you know? What, in what way? How do they affect you? You see things, you're involved in things. You're looking at other people's distress. And in Kosovo, it's the Balkans, right? There wasn't a great economy or structure there before the war. It definitely wasn't there after the war. And you're going in there. I was hearing stories of people were telling me their grief. And I was bottling it up inside and saying to myself, what the hell am I doing out here? I have a wife and a child at home. Okay, so I was going to be better than I curling up in the ball. This was getting suppressed inside me, basically. Next day I was going out and doing a job in the villages where there was a mass grave or people were distressed or they're telling you, that's me, me daughter's grave, my husband's grave, you know. All that has an effect on you, you know. And can you prepare somebody for that? I don't think you can prepare them totally. Ask any UNHCR guy or any goal person that goes out and does all these jobs in the, in the tsunami and all that. I don't think that prepares you for it. You probably get numb to it after a while. That's some kind of a prepare, preparation for the next one. So there's people out in Liberia now. Yeah. Which it seems to be, you have a younger brother out there which seems to be completely chaotic compared to somewhere like Kosovo. At least in Kosovo, you get the sense that you're part of a structure and that there's a certain amount of progress going on, or at least there's a future. But places like Liberia and Sierra Leone seem to be quite chaotic. Yeah. 
are people better prepared for that now than they would have been in, in Jadaville? Like, I'm looking at some of the photographs here, and I'm looking at them in the African sunshine, and I'm thinking about the fellas who are out there now at the moment. Well, there's a big difference in the soldiers that went to the co- to Congo in 1916, a big difference in the tro- soldiers going overseas. Now, for one, uniforms looking at there are bullseye uniforms. And you were out using outdated weapons. Now you have the best of equipment going out overseas, proper uniforms and a good structure. But all I'm trying to say is, no matter how well prepared you are militarily, equipment-wise or anything, that what you see, like a soldier is going out to do a peacekeeping job, that's a policeman's job, really. You know what I mean? 